Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Air quality has not improved much over the past decade. That's partly because smoke from wildfires has gone up. On today's show, we explore new data that shows how wildfire activity made worse by climate change is impacting the air we breathe. And we hear about the renovation of a former Colorado facility for tuberculosis patients and the extraordinary artifacts the process is uncovering. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Despite some gains, Colorado's air quality hasn't improved much over the past decade. That's partly because of an increase in smoke from wildfires. That smoke is full of fine particulate matter called PM2.5. And it's not just associated with Colorado fires. It can travel hundreds of miles, causing problems for even healthy people. In conjunction with an investigation by NPR stations in California, KUNC's Michael DeOanna looks at how wildfire activity worsened by climate change is impacting our air. Hey, how are you? Jack, good to meet you. Good to meet you. That's Jack Todd. I meet him in Denver at the beginning of his morning work commute. It's uh, nice and cool out this morning. It's a uh, fall morning, isn't it? I know. <laughs> what a change All from sudden, last week. I know, right? The chilly air is on our minds because we're riding bicycles. We're following bike paths on Todd's three-ish mile trip to downtown. It allows you to see the city in a way that uh, you don't normally see. You know, I see foxes, I see coyotes, I see eagles um, along the trail. and. And those moments are are really special and and remind me how thankful I am to be able to have access to this. Todd is director of communication and policy for Bicycle Colorado, an organization that advocates for bike riders statewide. We have been working for almost 30 years now to get more people on bikes, and um, there's so many reasons for that. It's it's better for our physical health, it's better for our mental health, and it's better for our cities and, and our environment. And so there's so many benefits to biking. Every rider we see represents a car or truck not spewing out pollutants. But vehicles aren't the only problem. We're also dealing with more wildfire smoke. Sometimes it's evident. You can look outside and you see the, the way that the color of the sun and you know something's not right. But how often is air pollution a problem in Colorado? KUNC dug into a decade of Federal Air Quality Index data to get a better idea. It's called the AQI for short. Across the state, pollution sensors log days that are green, the best it gets, to purple, which is the very worst. We didn't find a lot of purple days, but there were fewer green days than is ideal. What we found in each of those years is that roughly 25% of the days were yellow, orange, or red, categories where air can start to harm sensitive people all the way to being unhealthy for all of us.
ground-level ozone, a chemical reaction triggered by sunlight and heat that is linked to vehicle exhaust and industry, is an ever-present problem in the AQI. It routinely exceeds federal health standards. But it's declined slightly over the past decade, while another pollutant, PM2.5, has been going up. One snapshot is last year, when record-setting wildfires blazed in Colorado and throughout the West. Sensors logged, on average, 20 days of PM2.5. That's nearly twice as many average days as just 8 to 10 years ago. And in Denver, Boulder, and Weld counties, the impact was much worse, with all three exposed for well over 100 days. With all of this data, I turned to two researchers at Colorado State University who know a lot about the air and how it affects our health. We've been working collaboratively together now for, is it almost seven years, Jeff? Is that right? Um, something like that. That's Jeffrey Pierce, a professor of science, and Cheryl Magsiman, an associate professor of epidemiology. They found pollutants associated with wildfires make people sick. Smoke events increase risk of hospitalizations, especially for respiratory diseases like asthma, but for cardiovascular diseases as well. And we also found that increases in smoke are associated with increases in asthma deaths and cardiac arrest deaths along the front range. PM 2.5 is super small, 2.5 micrometers or less. So it's like probably about a hundredth of the width of a human hair is, is the average smoke particle. Meaning it can easily bypass the body's defenses and travel into the lungs, not only interfering with breathing, but potentially causing other problems. PM2.5 has been associated with, birth, with low birth weight, even from, especially from wildfires. There's a really interesting study that showed that. Neurological disease, diabetes, um, end stage renal failure. So the systemic effect of PM2.5 is really scary. Research on its health impacts, especially long-term, is ongoing. What is more conclusive is climate change science predicting an increase in hotter and drier days across the West, which means more wildfires. Now, it doesn't happen every year, but then, of course, last year and this year have been really bad. And on average, it, you know, it's, it's increasing. And I would suspect that when you average things over each decade, we will probably continue to see it get worse. An investigation by NPR member stations in California found that eight of the 10 largest wildfires in that state occurred in the past three years. And the smoke can travel thousands of miles, a problem that has grown worse in the last decade, with the number of days Americans are exposed to PM 2.5 rising dramatically. It's a real double whammy, and there's no question our patients notice it. Dr. Anthony Gerber is a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver. He says people with chronic health issues like emphysema and bronchitis can benefit from going outdoors. One of the things that does work to improve their quality of life and their longevity of life is actually exercise programs. But when the AQI moves to yellow or worse, orange or red, those patients can be forced to stay indoors. So you take that away, for four to six weeks in the summer, and they might really lose ground. And it's not just those with pre-existing health issues that doctors worry about. Dr. Jesse Johar is the emergency department medical director and chief of staff at Banner McKee Medical Center in Loveland. The people who live close to these fires, the people who are being exposed to the smoke more frequently, 
may have some long-term health issues that we just don't know yet. So we're advising everybody to try to protect yourself and take whatever precautions you can if you have to be out on a smoky day. Like wearing an N95 mask or better that filters out fine particulate matter. People shouldn't give up on exercising. It's good for them. And Dr. Johar advises they use apps or check reports to look for the best times to go out and where to go. And if it's a particularly smoky day, she might check the area and say, hey, you know what? It's smoky here, but actually in Greeley, it's not as bad today. Hey, down in Loveland, the air quality is much better. I might go down there and go for my ride. KUNC found a lot of that variability on a county level in the AQI data. Weld County had 136 PM 2.5 days in 2019 and 129 in 2020. And while Boulder County was on par with Weld both years, it still had fewer bad days. And that data doesn't get to a street level in both counties where some areas might have been safe. And it, it, it is tough. It's, you know, I ride every day. And there are days that I, I question whether that's the smartest thing for me to do. As we ride our bikes, I ask Jack Todd what he does on days when the air quality isn't great. You know, I choose to because I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to make the air quality worse by driving. Sometimes he'll wear a mask or ride slower so he doesn't breathe too heavily. But because of that, he feels riding a bicycle is more important than ever for our air quality. And there's one more thing that's impacting our health. Researchers Jeff Pierce and Cheryl Magsman found that hospitalizations in Colorado, especially for asthma, actually went up at an unusual time. It wasn't when the fires were sending up plumes of smoke here, but instead it was when fires were burning in other states. We actually saw that there was an increase, a significant increase in asthma hospitalizations associated with smoke, increased smoke. And we think part of that could also be that the emergency response was associated with the fire locally, but there is no emergency response here in Colorado because, again, these fires were upwind of our communities. The takeaway, PM 2.5 is still dangerous, even on hazy days when the air doesn't smell smoky. And it could be a more pressing public health issue because those are days when people might not take the precautions they should be. Michael DeOanna. KUNC. We also asked officials with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment about the rise in PM 2.5 levels. They acknowledged the increased wildfire activity and noted that levels have not violated federal standards. And they pointed to efforts to reduce other sources of PM 2.5, such as emissions from coal plants, saying it has secured closure dates for numerous coal-fired units around the state. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the 1800s, a leading cause of death in the U.S. and around the world was tuberculosis, also known as the White Death or consumption. The disease had no vaccine or antibiotic. But one treatment that was thought to be effective was relocating to parts of the country with drier air, higher elevation, and sunny skies, making Colorado the perfect location for TB patients. The influx of patients didn't just mean a higher population of people suffering from the disease, but it also drew more doctors to the state and led to the creation of multiple treatment facilities and resort spas. In essence, Colorado's role as the world's sanatorium actually helped to put the state on the map. 
One of those treatment facilities, the Union Printers Home in Colorado Springs, was once the world's largest care facility for printers suffering from TB and black lung. The building, which first opened in 1892, was recently sold to an investment group, All Pro Capital, and five local families. But when renovation to turn the facility into a community-centered hub began, fascinating historical documents were quickly unearthed. Darren Zaruba is a businessman, consultant, and ad hoc documentarian for the group helping to preserve the Union Printers' home and the stories housed inside. I spoke with him last month. To start, can you tell us a bit of the history around this 130-year-old, 200,000-square-foot complex? For those who have never seen it, what does the building look like and what purposes has it filled over the years? Yeah, sure. Actually, it's uh, remaining on 27 acres and the building that everybody knows is known as the castle on the hill because it was built in a renaissance style but there's actually four large structures on the property totaling about 200,000 square feet the castle is about 100,000 uh, itself and the two behind it uh, there's a dorm sanatorium both of those were built in the 1930s along with a power facility, which was a coal-powered like heating facility, laundry, wood shop. Um, so all those total about 200,000 square feet and three buildings in back uh, create a courtyard. And uh, the three buildings in back were built in the 1930s. So there's actually an Art Deco style and a Renaissance style building. But everybody really knows this place because of the iconic arch and because of the, the large grounds and because they know it as the castle on the hill. What was life like for the patients there? Uh, were all of the patients printers? And, and if so, did that make them more susceptible to tuberculosis and black lung? Yeah, originally, the, the first mention of a home for printers was actually brought up in 1857, I found out. And then it was tabled for many, many years until a couple people donated a large sum of money that kind of started the ball rolling. And when this opened, it was specifically for printers that were members of the International Typographical Union. So printing in general was uh, thought of as a pretty good and prestigious career, but it was pretty dangerous because they were dealing with carbon-based inks uh, that went into their lung, thus the black lung. Uh, they were dealing with lead. They were dealing with uh, poor working conditions, long hours, even bacteria from spittoons and things like that. So a bunch of the members wanted to, uh, wanted to put a home together. So uh, when that was realized and the first iteration of this castle was built on a hill with nothing else around it, uh, they described it as snakes and scrub brush around, and we have pictures to show that. Uh, when they first opened it, it was specifically for printers of the union. And when they would come here, when they got admitted to this facility, which I think had about 50 beds only initially, uh, when they got admitted to the facility here, basically they left their previous life behind for a while and they were left to convalesce and get better or uh, move on. And uh, one of the slogans of this that I found is it's bounty unpurchasable and it's charity without price. So what that meant was that when somebody came here, they lived here for free. They, they didn't have to work. They didn't have to worry about food, clothes, anything. So it really was an interesting time for labor units to kind of take care of their own. And it wasn't until a few years later that the tuberculosis crisis kind of started really coming home and they started doing more specifically for TB, uh, sanatorium tents and things like that. So there were 
there were games, there was croquet, there was, uh, I mean, they, they had a pretty regimented schedule with food, but all in all, it, uh, this place was a place of care and, uh, and loving kindness toward one's fellow man. We're talking with Darren Zaruba, who is working to document and preserve the Union Printer's Home in Colorado Springs. Darren, I have to ask, what drew you to be a part of this project? How did you even find out about it? I've been coming down to Colorado Springs since I was a little kid. My family was down here. Uh, we went to Memorial Park quite a bit. This uh, looks over the largest park in Colorado Springs and looks looks over downtown. I've always been fascinated by old buildings and structures and history. And I've been on this property multiple times, but it was it was just vague in the city. Everybody knew what this building was, but anybody that I'd asked or anybody that I talked to, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I know that building. I love it. I love the arch, but what is it? So it was always a care facility. And in uh, 2020, it shut down. And uh, I just happened to be uh, looking at it one day across the street at a coffee shop. And uh, it had, it started looking a little bit more abandoned. I dug into it. Um, I called some uh, affiliates with a group called All Pro Capital here. And uh, we found that it was getting ready to be under contract from an out-of-state um, out state investor or developer. And uh, we moved fast and got it under contract. And and the first aspect of this whole thing was just to save the property. Because uh, who knows what would have happened to it, whether it would have been scraped and you lost the history or, or whatever. So once we got all pro capital involved, then we also got uh, five very prominent families here in town that are philanthropists also, but uh, love history and, and really wanted to protect it and do something with it. As one of the main documentarians here, what is your goal in unearthing all of the building's hidden stories? It sounds like it's being changed into a new community center. Uh, with that in mind, how are you aiming to preserve the facility's former identity and kind of remind people of what this place used to be? When we started doing this, it really, like I said, was to preserve the buildings. But as we've dived in, I mean, there's 130 years plus worth of history, uh, both of labor unions uh, the printing, typesetting, and graphic arts, uh, marketing, advertising industry, uh, uh, members here and their stories, the architecture here, basically a history of Colorado Springs. And, and uh, as I've dived into this more, I've just, uh, I've just grown to appreciate the history of this place. And it's kind of gone into obscurity. Uh, when I think it was back trying to think in 18 or 1980s, uh, the International Typographical Union basically disbanded, uh, primarily because the advent of computers, typesetting had gone away. And uh, TU basically disbanded, rolled up into um, another union. And uh, since then it was always a care facility, but this place and its history just kind of started um, moving into obscurity. And especially everybody in town, uh, I, I think the importance of this facility, the buildings and its history have uh, really been lost. Um, so thank goodness that when we dive in here, we've got so much history from pictures and articles and everything else that uh, the main goal for me is to, is to really show how important this place was, not just to Colorado Springs or Colorado, but to the nation. Darren Zaruba is a businessman and consultant working to document and preserve the Union Printers home in Colorado Springs. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me.
Overcrowding, mandatory minimums, and privatization are all issues that have long plagued the prison system across the U.S. But another, perhaps less talked about issue, is the inability of inmates to make a livable income while they're incarcerated. Buck Adams is a veteran, entrepreneur, and was formerly incarcerated before founding the organization Art for Redemption, which aims to help inmates by promoting the artwork they make while in prison. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber recently met up with Buck Adams in Denver. They went to a gravel lot near 38th and Chestnut Place behind Blue Moon Brewery, where he showed his recently completed interactive mural that calls for prison reform and celebrates the artistic abilities of the people who are incarcerated. Back in 2018, Buck Adams was making less than $10, not per hour or even per day, but per month. I created a yoga program and became a yoga teacher, and they gave me $7 a month for that. But that, I mean, that wouldn't even buy a book of stamps. That's because Buck Adams was serving time in a Colorado prison. And of all the difficulties and disparities he encountered, the inability of inmates to make a livable income is what stood out the most. So I really kind of saw the hardship of what it would be. Um, and to open that conversation up of, you know, why wouldn't we want these gals and gals that are paying their penance through their time in the system of either creating a savings account, paying their restitution, paying their societal debts. If they have child support, being able to actually participate in that. If it's broken apart a family, um, being able to not just be a constant drain on the family with phone calls and, you know, putting 50 bucks on someone's book uh, books every month so that they can get a jar of peanut butter and pack of tuna so they don't have to eat what I would say is barely edible food. So once Buck got out of the system after about a year and a half, the lifelong entrepreneur started the organization Art for Redemption. So our main mission, what we're trying to do is incite reform in other prison systems to allow inmates that are currently incarcerated to make money through their creativity or, you know, um, if you can use the prison sentence to teach something else and learn new skill sets or to have something else to fall back on, it would reduce recidivism rates greatly. And in order to draw attention to this mission, while expressing his own creativity, Buck created an interactive mural on Chestnut Street, next to the Blue Moon Brewery in the Rhino District of Denver. So the mural itself is um, a map of the United States with the Statue of Liberty running down the middle of it that is a collage of artworks of um, about 400 different pieces. And um, bars are overlaid on top of that, basically kind of locking up Lady Liberty in the United States. But this mural is more than what meets the eye, literally. What's unique about this mural, it's one of a few in this area that are actual interactive. So there's a code that you need to, or an app that you need to download, and then it kind of scans like a code that's, I guess, to make it a similar, uh, like a Q code, but it's not a Q code, it's called a zap code. And what that does is it starts to interact with your phone to an augmented reality piece. So the bars are actually made up of faces and self-portraits and names of all the artists that are in the artwork itself of the collage of Lady Liberty. And once you scan the artwork with your phone and the faces pop up on your screen, a video begins. The first aspect to the video that comes to life is 
you start to see the faces and self-portraits come to life inside the bars. And then it goes to a typewritten message of mass incarceration plus the mandatory sentencing plus the privatization of prisons has, you know, equals the world's largest prison population, which we have in the United States now. Lady Liberty in the United States is the land of second chances, the land of freedom, all these things. But if you've been uh, attached to the system in any way, it becomes very hard and um, almost that you don't have a second chance. Buxy's art is more than just a method of expression. It's also a catalyst for conversation. You know, through the ages, I believe, art has always helped bridge the gap between different realities or different segments of humans to, you know, open up the conversation that we're all human. We all make mistakes, some worse than others, some get caught, some don't, some pay bigger penalties. Um, it's the forgiveness part that really comes down to why we're all human. And so being able to express oneself through art when you are looking for a way to do time. Um, you know, a lot of these artists are what are considered outside artists, which means self-taught artistry. And so the take that time that they're doing to hone a skill that some of it's incredible. Um, I think why wouldn't we celebrate that a little bit as far as humans all together and you know, try to make some of these changes on reform of, of not only mass incarceration and mandatory sentencing and privatization of prisons, but I think all that is we're seeing does not work and it's a very broken system. So, you know, hopefully we can bridge the gap and open up some of those conversations and, and connect that we're all are human. For Colorado Edition, I'm Alana Schreiber. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.